0: section twenty of pastiche and prejudice this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by Kier. pastiche and prejudice by arthur bingham walkley chapter twenty audiences audiences may be divided into first-nighters second-nighters and general playgoers all audiences are important but first-nighters most of all without them the acted drama would not begin to exist for obvious reasons i have nothing but good to say of them i wish to live at peace with my neighbours and i do not believe the malicious story told about a manager now dead that he liked to fill the second rows of his stalls on first nights with his superannuated sweethearts nobody is fat or old in bath and there are no superannuitants among first-nighters i find from mr max Beerholm's entirely delightful book seven men that it's possible to get tired of first-nighters i should never have guessed it myself but this is what he says i was dramatic critic for the saturday review and weary of meeting the same lot of people over and over again at first-night's had recently sent a circular to the managers asking that i might have seats for second-nights instead but mark what follows i found that there existed as distinct and invariable a lot of second-nighters as of first-nighters the second-nighters were less showy but then they came more to see than to be seen and there was an air that i liked of earnestness and hopefulness about them i used to write a good deal about the future of the british drama and they for their part used to think and talk a great deal about it though second-nighters do come to see. they remain rather to hope and pray because i have quoted i must not be understood as accepting mr Beerholm's implied aspersion on first-nighters it's all very well for him he is retired the more's the pity from dramatic criticism but i take his account of second-nighters on trust because the exigencies of a daily newspaper prevent me from observing them for myself. Evidently they, no more than first-nighters, are average playgoers. Not that I would disparage the general playgoer. Indeed, I'm not sure that he's not in another sense than Labiche's Le plus heureux de toi. I can speak for myself. Mind, I am saying nothing against first-nighters. They are entirely admirable persons. I could never bring myself, uh, like mister Bergholm, to call them a lot. But oh, the joy of being, on holiday occasions, a general playgoer, of throwing one's considering cap over the mills, of garnering no impressions for future copy, of blithely ignoring one's better judgment, of going comfortably home from the play, like everybody else, instead of dashing madly into a taxi for the newspaper office. The play will be well on in its run. The comedian will have polished up his jokes. The superfluities will have been cut out. The programme girls will long since have given up leading the applause. You won't know a soul, and you won't even bother to look at the author's name. You surrender your individuality and drift with the crowd, or in more pretentious language, merge yourself in the collective consciousness. Which reminds me, the general playgoer, just because he is general, is what henry james called george sand remarkably accessible everybody knows him he's a public theme theorists won't leave him alone in particular the collective psychologists have marked him for their prey for them he typifies the theatrical crowd with the peculiar crowd characteristics these theorists profess to have scientifically classified Scarcy began it lemaitre followed and comparatively obscure scribes have devoted attention to their general playgoer. they have said that he is no philosopher he cannot adopt a detached impersonal disinterested view of life he must take sides hence the convention of the sympathetic personage he has not the judicial faculty is not accustomed to sift evidence or to estimate probabilities hence the convention of the long arm of coincidence and the convention that the wildest improbability may be taken as the starting point of a play the general playgoer as such is virtuous and generous for we are all on our best behavior in public and he insists upon a strict separation of virtue and vice he wants his personages all of a piece the composite characters blends of good and evil he refuses to recognize hence the conventions of hero and villain of poetic justice and of living happy ever afterwards further it has been suggested that a crowd of general playgoers having an individuality of its own cannot but be interested in that individuality apart from all reference to the cause which brought it together once assembled it becomes self-conscious self-assertive it finds itself an interesting spectacle and the general playgoer is not of the cloistered but of the gregarious type of mankind he must have bustle the sense of human kinship brought home to him by sitting elbow to elbow with his neighbors the faculty of intellectual attention is seldom high in such a temperament as this hence the playwright has to force the attention of a temperamentally inattentive audience mark once more that i'm not speaking of first-nighters their individuality is too strong to be crowd immersed. I would not, for worlds, speak of them as a crowd at all. They are an assemblage, a constellation, a galaxy, admirable persons. But there is one thing for which I envy the general playgoer above all- I mean his freedom and pungency of criticism. Anonymity gives him a responsibility, and his resentment at being bored not being subject to the cooling process of literary composition. His language is apt to be really terrible. Talk of printed criticism. Actors and authors do talk of it often enough, and on the whole don't seem to like it, but let them mingle with the general playgoer and keep their ears open. Who was the man in Balzac who said that it was absurd to speak of the danger of certain books when we all had the corrupt book of the world open before us? and beyond that, another book a thousand times more dangerous. All that is whispered by one man to another, or discussed behind ladies' fans at balls. So, the general playgoer is the great purveyor of secret criticism. Disraeli, or another, said that the secret history of the world, which never got into the history books, was the only true history. Let us hope that secret criticism is not the only true sort. But is certainly the most live it is free from the literary bias the cant of criticism the smell of the lamp and it is the most potent of persuasives published criticism is powerless against it the fate of a play is not decided by newspaper criticism thank goodness i should be miserable if it were but by what the general playgoers say to one another and pass on to their friends how many plays with record runs have been dismissed by the newspapers on the morrow of the first night with faint praise or positive dispraise the general playgoer has said his say and what he says goes i know he is giving many worthy people just now much uneasiness they form little theatrical societies a cote to keep him out they deplore his taste and organise leagues for his education and improvement I rather fancy he's like the young lady in the play who didn't want to have her mind improved. But that's another story. What I have been envying for him is not his taste, but the heartiness with which he abounds in his own sense, and his freedom in expressing it. After all, perhaps criticism that is so free and so pervasive and so potent is not exactly to be called secret. I seek the mot juste. Or I would, if that were not a back number. Has not Mr. Beerholm finally put it in its place as the holy grail of the 90s? End of section 20. Recorded by Kier.